We can all agree, easy sentence, AI systems shouldn't be biased, they shouldn't discriminate. What does that look like in practice? This is the year where people are actually going to have to answer those questions in detail. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, if 2023 was the year we all got familiar with generative AI, is 2024 the year when governments will act on the governance of this powerful technology? We have to move into the action phase, I think will be a key thing to watch in 2024. We hear from the head of global affairs at ChatGPT's OpenAI. We want a global regime that includes every country that thinks about catastrophic risk. Sam often talks about it as the IAEA model for AI. So what are global leaders saying to Sam Altman? Every world leader wants to understand how to harness this technology for the benefits of their country while putting in place guardrails. And people are on different ends of the spectrum about which one they prioritize. AI has an almost limitless number of applications, so how can those guardrails work across such a broad spectrum of activities? What are the very specific guardrails? rails a model should have to prevent it, inflicting certain specific harms. I think you should forbid any person from ever saying something about we need to do this for AI without specifying what use cases they're talking about. We have to protect the little guy. There has to be new ideas, there has to be a new generation of thinkers building and contributing. That needs to be a top priority for the regulators. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit weft.ch slash podcast where you also find our sister programs Meet the Leader and Agenda Dialogues. I'm Robin Pomer at the World Economic Forum and with views from Davos on how AI can and should be governed. This is an incredibly challenging moment for the world. This is Radio Davos. At the World Economic Forum's annual meeting last month, artificial intelligence was very much the issue of the day. I managed to grab several interviews with people shaping the future of AI. Later in the show, Anna Makanju, Vice President of Global Affairs at OpenAI, the company that brought us ChatGPT. Including her in their top 100 people in AI, Time magazine said... There's a good chance that whatever AI regulations emerge across the world in the next few years, Anna Makanju will have left her fingerprints on them. We'll also hear from a young Silicon Valley CEO, Aidan Gomez of Cohere, to get an insider's view of the conversations among the tech companies about regulation. First, I speak to Alexandra Reeve Givens, CEO of the Centre for Democracy and Technology, a non-profit organisation based in Washington and Brussels that advocates, as they put it, to protect civil rights and civil liberties in the digital age. I asked the head of the Centre for Democracy and Technology how important was the potential impact of technology on democracy. Deeply important. We can think about many different ways that AI is impacting democracy. One of the themes we're hearing a lot about this week at Davos is mis- and disinformation, deep fakes and the impact on elections. So that's one big piece of this. But also we have to think about economic inequality and the role that that plays in a democracy and the survival of democracy in the long term. For AI, that raises questions not only of job displacement, which is one of the themes we're hearing about, but also how decisions are made about people who gets access to a loan, who's chosen for a job, whether someone gets approved for public benefits or not. AI is seeping into all of those systems and has for the past several years in ways that policymakers and companies alike really have to pay attention to. Where do you feel things are going in terms of policymaking and governance? Are there tribal lines and kind of, is it seen as a binary thing? Or are we going to get through these conversations some kind of consensus that will get us that that governance and those guardrails is the cliche word people use, that we need that will work for everyone. So it's my job to be an optimist uh, as a a public interest advocate. But one of the things that I'm truly optimistic about is it feels like we're in a moment where the lines have not yet been drawn between one faction or the other. This is one of the refreshing areas of policy dialogue where companies, governments, and civil society alike are calling for action. 
and truly, I think, are engaged in good faith discussion about what that action looks like. Now, of course, we have to go from high-level discussion to actual rubber meets the road, laws being written, policies being adopted, new designs being deployed by companies. So we have to move into the action phase, and that's just starting to happen now, and I think will be a key thing to watch in 2024. But the good news is it doesn't feel tribalistic just yet. I think the real question is what steps should we be taking, and how do we get there quickly? That's interesting, because I, I had an impression, you know, coming very much from the outside to look at this issue, that there were those kind of lines that you have very kind of libertarian, you know, Silicon Valley types who say, just leave us alone, we're the smart guys, we can deal with this. And you've got a lot of people who are very scared about AI and are saying, shut it down. We even had a call this time last year for a six month moratorium. That, that, yeah. that seemed a, a little bit polarized back then. Yeah, so sure, there's a libertarian manifesto that made the, round, made the rounds, but I don't think that's reflective of where most corporate leaders are, particularly the ones that take governance seriously and their social responsibility seriously, which I like to think is still the majority, particularly of, of mainstream companies. So there, I think the real question is, how do we go from them saying we believe in responsible AI to actually saying, great, how do you operationalize that in practice? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that your definition of responsible AI isn't just something that escapes human control many years down the line, but actually is respecting people's rights and freedoms and economic opportunity now. And, and that's the real discussion, is how do we get concrete in those commitments? Is that one of the dividing lines in itself then, this idea of short-term and long-term? The long-term warriors who think we're gonna get the killer robots or whatever, these, these super beings who are smarter than us, that there's a risk of ignoring the short-term yeah, so that was a big divide in 2023, was about whether or not we focus on long-term risks or short-term risks. I would like to think we've reached the maturity model now of people realizing we can and must do both at once, and that actually some of the interventions are exactly the same. So if you worry about long-term risks of AI either escaping human control or being used for bionuclear terrorism, some of the same mechanisms, which are transparency, accountability mechanisms, who is designing those product and who are they consulting with as they do it, are actually the same types of interventions that those of us who think about near-term human rights harms are focused on as well. And so I hope we're seeing a little bit more of a convergence and less of a dichotomy in the field. And instead of it being, oh, do you care about X risk or do you care about current risk, it's actually, well, what are the interventions that are going to help address those harms and how do we start making progress on those? Okay, well, let's talk about those interventions then. How do you go about intervening in technologies like this that's so widespread and it's changing so rapidly all the time. I mean, maybe we could start with the point you raised about the misinformation and disinformation, which indeed came at the very top of the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report in the short-term risk the next one to two years. Misinformation, disinformation, I don't, I don't know where it appeared on previous years. That, for example, that's a tangible, or, or is it? I don't know. It's a risk. It's a current risk. Yeah. Um, how would you go about an intervention in that in kind of a policy making way? Well, it's a good example to focus on because it illustrates that there's going to be no one silver bullet and it's not one actor, right? So there's a role for legislation, but also in the realm of mis and disinformation, you run up on free speech pretty quickly. You can't just ban deep fakes or manipulated images. That becomes very, very hard when you think about the expressive purposes why people might want to, you know, Photoshop an image, for example. And so instead, what we have to think about is this hybrid solution. So Let's look at individual use cases. When a deepfake is being used to extort somebody, to defame somebody, to spread non-consensual sexual imagery about somebody, to manipulate an election, let's make sure there are legal interventions at that point that directly address that harm and hold that person responsible. 
But then also let's move up the chain. So for general purpose AI system, where obviously there are going to be good uses as well as harmful uses, what are the interventions that they can put in to try and regulate what those downstream bad uses might be? So what are their usage policies? What are their content policies? What triggers a red flag when somebody is using their system for them to then interrogate what that use is and maybe cancel that person's subscription or their access? Those are the types of questions we can be asking at the companies higher up in the stack so that technology is still widely available to people, but we are putting guardrails on that help establish uh, more responsible uses. Does some of that, though, rely on the goodwill of the company? Because we've had social media for you know, a couple of decades developing over time, and they've had, I think initially, again, it was, a, it was a wild west, and there was a libertarian thing of we're just a platform and people can you know, have this open town square, and then the big social media companies have approached moderation of, of that content in different ways, which is such a live issue now, isn't it? And it mm -hmm. was through the pandemic. You know, and you've got, um, obviously, Elon Musk's um, X, which he's made more libertarian, you know, and there are legitimate arguments in favor of that. But in the framework that we have at the moment, there seems to be a lot of reliance on that goodwill, and you're hoping that the companies will put that in place. And this is a field where you could have maverick companies or just individuals producing mass-scale disinformation. And that's really hard to stop or to, to guard against, isn't it? It is. You can create mechanisms that increase company accountability, though. And I think transparency and risk management frameworks is one of the clear places to start. Again, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. But when we're thinking about low-hanging fruit, so what are their content policies? What are their usage policies? How are they developing them? Um, how are they enforcing them? Are they actually enforcing them with consistency and looking at whether or not somebody is using their system for mass deception campaigns, for example, if that becomes more common down the road? There's some low-hanging fruit around what kind of mechanisms of accountability look like that would allow governments to stay clear of legislating, you know, your tool may produce this information, it may not produce that information. Governments get very worried about that for, for real reasons around free expression, but still establish these norms for what responsible processes look like that allow for better governance uh, to ultimately win the day. Now, you're immersed in the, in the Washington policy I don't want to, I was about to say bubble, but that sounds insulting. But <laughs> in that very active um, policy-making yeah. city, which obviously decisions made there have reverberations around the world. But to what extent is the governance of AI genuinely an international thing? Because you've had the EU producing legislation on this, and you've had China legislating about it, and you've had talks here at the World Economic Forum, but also at the United Nations and elsewhere, very much on a, on a global scale, where do you think, is it, is it going to be country by country putting these things in, into place? Is it important that it's cross-border? And how do you see that happening? Yeah, so again, we're going to need an all-of-the-above strategy. So my organization, CDT, is based in Washington and also in Brussels. And those are two places where uh, regional or national legislation is going to be hugely important. That's where you can get specific on use cases. You can fold things into existing laws. So for example, if an AI system is being used to discriminate in the course of hiring somebody, national employment laws should apply the exact same way that if a biased person in HR was you know, vetting somebody with an unfair standard. So there's this essential role for that type of specific geographically bound integration with existing law. But also, we need international cooperation, and we need it for a couple of different reasons. 
One is that these companies, of course, transcend borders. The technology transcends borders. Um, and also, a meaningful enforcement regime is going to be one where there's harmonization so that we can begin to say what good looks like and have some of the same language, at least, even if on a normative scale we land in slightly different places. So that's where vehicles like the US-EU Trade and Technology Council, uh, even you know, other forums have, that have been doing a lot of work on standardization. So what is the language that we use? What are the metrics for testing and evaluating an AI system? What are the rubrics that we use? Um, that can be incredibly productive at this early stage so that we get better, clearer benchmarking. And it's easier for the companies to kind of have a more uniform approach that they then can toggle to comply with local and national laws. Do we need a, a global treaty or something? You think about climate change or you think about the aviation industry, which has IATA or the nuclear energy industry, which has certain global regulations. Can that really apply to AI? I think you should forbid any person from ever saying something about we need to do this for AI without specifying what use cases they're talking about. Because an international treaty might be hugely important when we think about AI and some of the long-term safety risks, when we think about uh, AI and its use for autonomous weapons, for example. There are places where international coordination is going to be essential to make sure that rights and safety are protected. Then again, there are those more local and applied issues where really we're talking about enforcement of existing you know, civil rights standards, equality standards that do make sense more on the local or national level. And the international work to be done there is more about harmonization, threat detection, information sharing, and less about one binding global norm. So again, we have to be specific on these use cases and then toggle our different modes of intervention appropriately to respond to each one. Democracy and technology, you are working in a democracy or in several democracies, as you're also in the European Union. Does AI pose a risk of enabling authoritarian governments to become more authoritarian? And is there anything that can be done about that? Oh my goodness, without question. There are real risks about how AI is going to exacerbate the, the power of authoritarian regimes and make it even harder uh, to protect people's individual rights. We can look at this from a surveillance state purpose. So facial recognition is AI. AI is what powers that, is what makes it more coordinated. We're seeing governments now that uh, integrate the provision of public benefits and public services uh, through an AI system. So, for example, there were famous examples uh, in Iran where they were using face recognition to enforce the hijab laws. And at one point, a minister even said, if you were in violation of that, we might dock your benefits through an integrated system. So those are the types of concerns that one can easily imagine. And then, of course, there are concerns around you know, access to truth and information. So even you know, what are the norms to which a generative AI system's content policies are being written when OpenAI moves into a country with uh, a questionable human rights standards or different approaches to what information can and cannot be surfaced? So we have to have a real conversation around this. One of the areas that I'm hoping we see progress on in 2024 is much more public accountability for how the AI companies that are based in global democracies uh, are thinking about the human rights consequences when they move into and enter deals with countries that do not have strong human rights records. Um, there are the human rights guiding principles on this, the UN guiding principles on this. There are mechanisms through which these companies must be doing human rights impact assessments, should be talking about that publicly, should be doing it with external accountability and civil society oversight. And so far that conversation has been completely lacking. When people think about you know, the governance of AI, they often throw up their hands and say these are these massive big picture questions. 
there are really tangible things we could be doing right now to say, what is the human rights impact analysis that you're doing and how do we hold you accountable to that when you enter into business with a new regime? And that's one of the areas, just as an example, where we could be marking progress right away. You're meeting companies here in Davos. Do you think they're becoming aware of that and taking it seriously? Yeah, because this isn't new, right? There have been frameworks already for tech companies, for cloud service providers to decide whether or not to do business with a particular regime. Now, you know, have we fixed that and is it always done completely right? No, but at least there are frameworks and there's a language that we use around what those expectations are. So again, we're at the maturity phase where the AI companies can't just say, oh, we're new, we're still figuring this out anymore. They are at a level of sophistication. They're on the global stage. They're at places like Davos. They have to be taking that responsibility seriously too. And I think they understand it. It's just a question of making sure that this is as much of a priority as the next fundraising round or the next innovation you know, series of releases are gonna be. I was following a session earlier today about AI and AI governance. Everyone seemed to be repeating this idea that when governments don't understand something, the knee-jerk response is to ban it or restrict it in some way that, that's not very clever way of doing things and that governments still need to learn what AI is before they can really do proper governance. Do you think we're at that stage yet or have we moved beyond that? I find that a bit of a false argument to be honest. It's tempting of course for technologists and I say that both for the companies and for public interest organizations like mine to say oh government is slow, government doesn't understand. Um, that's an easy excuse to say, let's spend the next two years educating policymakers on this rather than having them act on it. So of course, policymakers have to be educated, but let's give them the credit where credit is due, that many of them are ramping up very quickly. They know who to call, they know who to consult when they're writing a piece of legislation or writing a policy. We cannot just say, let's take a breath and, and educate. We have to say, let's have informed policymaking action, but they can walk and chew gum at the same time. What do you think are the next steps this year in 2024? Are there going to be some things that everyone should be looking out for if you're a user or a maker of AI? 2024 is a big year to move from high-level principles into action. So the EU AI Act, they have their agreement. They're going to be starting to really work out the details of what implementation looks like. And of course, that's where the rubber hits the road. And then in the US, you have not only conversations around legislating, but really where the action is focused is implementation of President Biden's AI executive order, which is agencies across the government, across sectors, all issuing detailed guidance about what responsible use of AI looks like in their sectors um, and grappling with hard questions around the government's own use of AI too. All of those things require policymakers and the companies that are gonna be impacted to get really specific on what good looks like. Just to give an example, we can all agree, easy sentence, AI systems shouldn't be biased, they shouldn't discriminate. What does that look like in practice? What are you testing for? How are you doing that testing? And what happens to you if you don't meet the threshold of that test? This is the year where people are actually gonna to have to answer those questions in detail. Uh, and I hope that means that it's a year of progress because it's gonna be in hashing through those details that we really figure out what is measurable, what is fixable, and what's the right accountability regime to make sure that people are taking that responsibility seriously. You started this conversation by saying you're an optimist, and I think you're talking on the kind of governance side of things and being able to control AI rather than having it control us. But I wonder if you're also optimistic on the promise of AI as well. Are there things you think AI can do that, that excite you, that make you think actually, at least here, 
this is definitely going to be good for us. Without question. And I actually think it's, it's one of the things I worry about is this false binary, that if you're a critique of the risks of AI, it suddenly means that you're a downer on the technology. And I am absolutely not. I think it's going to have a huge power to transform the way that we work, the way that we communicate. Um, you think about the medical advances uh, and, and so many other ways in which it really is going to just drive human innovation forward. I think the watchword for me is what's responsible, rights respecting innovation. And to me, there's this massive opportunity for us to try and get that right, to say we're at this cusp, we're at this threshold, where again, the companies are saying the right things about wanting this innovation to be harnessed uh, and used in a productive and responsible way. We just have to fill in the details of what that responsible governance looks like. And that really is a, a, is a secret to success, to showing, of course, we can move forward with innovation, but we can do in a way that lifts up everybody and respects and protects everybody as we do so. Alexandra Reeve Givens, CEO of the Centre for Democracy and Technology, speaking to me in Davos, where I also met our next guest, Aidan Gomez, founder and CEO of the AI company Cohere. What does the head of a Silicon Valley company think about the governance of AI? I think that governance is needed. Um, we definitely need better policy and regulation. I think the way that we get there is incredibly important. Um, it's tough to regulate a horizontal technology like language. Language is, it, it impacts every single vertical, every single industry. Wherever you have more than one human, there's language happening. And so it's, it's the definition of horizontal in general. Um, I don't think we should be regulating it in the horizontal layer. I think we should be regulating it in the vertical layer and helping the existing policymakers, the existing regulators, get smart on generative AI, its impact to their domain of expertise, um, and help them, empower them uh, to mitigate the risks in their context. I, I've been really, I'm quite optimistic about the policy discussions that are going on right now. I think I was nervous last year that we would get fear of terminators and these sort of like sci-fi narratives around AI, I think that's been cooled. I think people are actually interacting with the technology themselves. They see its limitations. They realize this isn't some sort of sci-fi novel. Um, and so they're becoming much more practical. And it's turning into a conversation of, okay, what use cases are we okay with? What do we need to protect against? Um, and how do we do that? How do we build a framework to do that? So I, I'm optimistic we're headed in a, in a good direction. And there seems to be really multilateral um, collaboration. Everyone's invested in this technology going well for humanity. Within the community of computer scientists and engineers and people who are building and the companies that are investing so much money in creating these things, with those people who you must meet all the time, is there a consensus on that kind of thing, do you think? Or are there clear dividing lines of some people say, leave us alone, we don't want any regulation. Some people say, let's look at the killer robots and make sure we've got something there. I mean, I've heard some computer scientists talking not exactly that kind of language. But are there kind of different camps in, in, in your field? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and lots of, you know, bitter academic debates about what we should be doing. Um, I, I think, you know, there's loads of different takes. Um, everyone has the same end goal which is that this goes well. Um, how you do that is hotly contested, although I feel like we're finding alignment. Um, I feel like we're finding some sort of middle ground between the extremes of, we should not work on this technology, you know, shut it all down. Um, and then the other direction, which is, we need no regulation, do whatever you want with the technology, uh, and just throw it out there. I, 
I think we're finding the right middle ground. I, there, there are things to be nervous about. For instance, um, you know, we need healthy competitive markets. And this technology requires a lot of resources in order to build. And so that lends itself to the incumbents being able to use regulation, uh, plus their channel modes, their access to capital, to block out a new generation of thinkers, builders. Um, and we need to make sure that regulation doesn't aid that. Regulation should actually fight back against that and keep markets dynamic um, and allow innovation. Well, um, how would you achieve that? What, what kind of policies would achieve that, do you think? So you don't want to be too onerous on the little guys, the guys that are just coming up, trying to build new experiences, trying to innovate. Um, otherwise, you're going to entrench value in the companies that have 100-person legal teams, which can meet whatever regulation you come up with. So you need to make sure that regulation takes into account who you're regulating, their scale, um, and doesn't block out the little guy. Um, there are lots of stories where that's failed. Regulation has genuinely cut out um, small companies from being able to compete in an environment. Uh, and some regulation is good. It doesn't do that. It actually empowers the little guys to, you know, get ahead and work with the regulator more closely than the big ones and, um, you know, get to a place where they're self-sustaining and able to play on the field. Um, within AI, it's such a potent, powerful technology. I think that we have to protect the little guys. There has to be new ideas. There has to be a new generation of thinkers building and contributing. And so that needs to be a top priority for the regulators. What's your feeling about kind of a global governance? Some people say the airline industry has a treaties and organizations. I'm, I'm expecting you're saying because you don't think it should be horizontal, anything global, maybe does it have to be in those kind of verticals in the actual applications or the certain fields? Do we need no international? We need international coordination. Um, we need to come to a consensus on what we want to do globally. Whether there needs to be an actual international regulator, um, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of that because to begin with, regulating AI, AI is such a general platform, it's such a general horizontal technology it's very, very difficult to regulate in those terms. Um, it's actually kind of ill-defined to begin with. Um, you don't know, like, what is a regulation on AI? It, it's so abstract and so general that it, there's not enough scoping. But if you ask, how about AI applied to healthcare? Then you can start concrete things. You know what? We can't take doctors out of the loop. We need human oversight. We'll build a regulation which says any output from an AI system needs to be reviewed by a human doctor before it actually impacts a patient. You can actually get concrete there. So I, I think it's a bit, it might be a fool's errand to pursue the horizontal regulation of a hyper-general technology like AI. Aidan Gomez is CEO of Cohere. You can hear more from that interview in our episode about the pioneers of AI. That's on your Radio Davos feed. One company that everyone wanted to meet in Davos was OpenAI. They brought you ChatGPT not so long ago. You can hear from its CEO, Sam Altman, speaking on a panel discussion at Davos on our sister podcast, Agenda Dialogues. To get into the weeds on governance and policy, I caught up in Davos with OpenAI's Vice President of Global Affairs. Hi, I'm Anna Makanju, and I lead the Global Affairs team at OpenAI. So, Anna, you've worked 
correct me if I'm wrong, in the White House, NATO, United Nations, as well as in the corporate sector. Just wondering, how does working in a company like OpenAI compare to any of those? What's remarkable is how similar a lot of the work has been because this issue has become so central to many questions, including geopolitical questions. So there is a great deal of similarity that I didn't necessarily anticipate. You've been traveling the world. As you mentioned before the interview, the headline says with Sam Altman because he's the man of the moment globally, particularly here in Davos. But what, when you've been having discussions with heads of state and leaders of various stripes, what are the conversations people want to have with OpenAI and with you? A lot of people want to know what the future will look like, which we sort of, you know, we have a glimpse that's about five months ahead because we sort of know where the research is leading, what kinds of things AI will be able to do that it can't do currently. But at the same time, we are not able to anticipate the exact way that this technology is going to be incorporated because now that it is out in the world, people are doing things with it that we didn't anticipate um, that are often really incredible and creative. And also it's just becoming more and more integrated in society. But basically every world leader wants to understand how to harness this technology for the benefit of their country while putting in place guardrails. And people are on different ends of the spectrum about which one they prioritize and put more weight on. But this is kind of the same theme in all of these conversations. The guardrails, it's, it's such a complex issue, but is there, you must have an elevator pitch on, this should be the approach to guardrails and to governance. Do you have that? A lot of people think that we'd have an elevator <laughs> pitch. I think the one thing that we're very confident in is that we want a global regime that includes every country that thinks about catastrophic risk. And you know, Sam often talks about it as the IAEA model um, for AI. That's the Atomic yeah. Energy Agency. And, and we feel relatively optimistic you know, that no one wants an AI system that's going to harm um, you know, a huge number of people uh, or be uncontrollable. So we do think that it's possible to have such an agreement. But in general, I think it is quite difficult to have an overarching regime that has thought about every single way that the system could impact you know, every single sector. So I think for the most part, we believe that something like what the uh, executive order in the United States does, where it tasks every agency to think about how does that agency implement this? How does that agency set guardrails for what they do makes sense? So those agencies are looking at certain sectors, industries, applications, if you like, but a global, you're talking about an IAEA, any idea how, how that would work? Because IAEA is covering an industry which is potentially very dangerous, nuclear power, but it's, it's fairly clear what it's for, what its misuse or what accidents could be. It's not clear yet, is it really, what could be the catastrophic risk, do you think? So how, how would you see that organization or agency doing? What would you see it doing? We actually are doing quite a bit of research to understand and make more specific uh, what risks there are, because I agree to date this conversation has been fairly um, theoretical. But we have a preparedness team that looks at this very question. What are some of the most serious risks that might arise? And the way, you know, nuclear power is also incredibly beneficial. And so similarly, this agency, I can imagine both thinking about what are the very specific guardrails a model should have to prevent it from um, inflicting certain specific harms, but also how do you distribute the benefits of this technology, whether that means having access to 
compute power for every nation that's part of this regime, or having tailored models. Um, I think there are, is a range of ways you can think about what benefits people would be entitled to if they're also implementing the guardrails. We're at a moment of disharmony when it comes to geopolitics. How easy is it to discuss a global agreement, some kind of global consensus on an issue as new to most of us and as complex at this in a, in a time when you've got, I don't need to spell out you know, the geopolitical fault lines, but how are those conversations going, bearing that in mind? I, I can't say that we are, I'm not saying that we're very advanced in this discussion, but I feel relatively optimistic in the Cold War we were still able to have these kinds of discussions and we were able to put in place regimes of inspection for nuclear sites. So we know from precedent that for something where everyone is concerned about uh, the impact of a technology because it is in each nation's own interest, um, that this can be done. Do you go on the record and say what those catastrophic events might be? I mean, could you give us an idea of what Sam Altman, what keeps him up at night? You know, I think it is unfortunate because I do think we spend so much time only focusing on catastrophic risks and downsides. And I should first say that uh, I think we are building this technology because we believe in the tremendous benefit and upside that it can have for people um, everywhere. So this was only in terms of what I think uh, the regulatory intervention, uh, where the things might go with regulatory intervention. Not necessarily this is the entirety or even the primary focus that we have. It's just something that we think it's important to think about. And I completely agree with you. There's still a lot of work to be done. But, you know, some of it is, you know, can a rogue system go off and set off nuclear weapons? These are the kinds of things that you can imagine. What about this kind of self-regulation model? Because you formed this thing called the Frontier Model Forum. Could you tell us what that is and what it aims to do? The idea there was right now every company, of course, thinks about what does it mean to release a model safely. Um, I believe virtually every company now does red teaming, which is something that we've done uh, with our models to, to make sure we can understand what some of the immediate risks of the model can be, how can it be misused, how can we mitigate those risks. And there are all kinds of things we do. We, all, we constantly talk about in the industry, responsible deployment, safe models. No one knows what that means practically. And so the idea here was that each company does something different. We don't have, even have the same vocabulary. How can we align as an industry of what are actual best practices on safety? And although it is a self-regulatory model, this type of approach is something we've heard a lot of governments ask for because they are talking to companies individually and in the end, they're not actually sure what any of us are doing. Just remind me, so it was created less than a year ago. It's been just a few months, actually. Okay, and remind us the companies involved in it. Right now, it's Microsoft, OpenAI, Anthropic, and Google. But I, this year, I'm, I'm sure there will be new members as well. I, as a journalist, have been covering industries in various different sectors over the years, and you often get sectors or companies saying, we know what's best for us, we'll self-regulate, and will deliver and you don't need to worry about regulation or you know or interference and there has been some resistance from some parts of silicon valley saying no leave us alone we know how to do this best do you get criticism that you're banding together to self-regulate in some way to avoid regulation so the fmf is really not about regulation um, it is about identifying a common set of practices 
and I see it not as avoiding regulation, but actually feeding into regulation, because regulation needs to understand where should we set the thresholds. For example, an executive order, they were really trying to find a place, you know, we need some reporting requirements on training runs, but where's the threshold? Because for a smaller company or a startup, it may be very challenging to comply. So we want to set a threshold so it doesn't burden companies who are not resourced enough to do this, and because their products are not actually dangerous enough to require these disclosures. So um, the FMF is really meant to feed into regulation where there's this, there is an information asymmetry. At the end of the day, the companies that are building these models know the most about them. They have the most granular understanding of all the different aspects and don't think anyone should trust companies to self-regulate. Um, but I, I do believe that it's necessary to have this dialogue, to have regulation that's actually going to be robust. Yeah, I think you've just answered what was going to be my next question. Concerns about from startups, from small companies, that you've now got some of these very big names with huge budgets for research and development, that they could get excluded. Are they right to be concerned? Or do you think the way things are going, there will be, there has to be, doesn't there, a fertile ground for startups for innovation? There are two things. One, actually, we have seen an incredible explosion of startups and small companies doing this work and finding market share. So it, I don't know why that would be a concern because the, you know, the actual evidence has been to the contrary. But also, I know that there has been often this regulatory capture narrative. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's funny because I think, you know, you, you, it's like a lose-lose because if you're not arguing for regulation, then, you know, you're trying to avoid consequences. If you're arguing for regulation, it means you're trying to pull up the ladder behind you. But that's why we've actually been very clear that we think the regulatory burdens should accrue on companies that are, because right now, in order to build a model at the next generation, you need to have tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in chips, you know, data centers, um, the talent. I mean, it is an incredibly resource and, you know, uh, dollar intensive endeavor. And so if you have that, then I don't really think uh, <laughs> we should be concerned about the burden of also meeting some regulatory requirements. And this shouldn't impact small businesses or lower resource companies. Where do you see the year going in AI? Can you predict, are people already saying this by the summer we're going to have this and, um, and I don't, don't necessarily mean with your own company but are, are there things we, you're looking forward to in the year but also probably closer to your own heart in the regulatory or the, the governance process are, are there things that people who are following this should be looking out for and ready for in 2024? It's quite likely we will see more capable models that can do more coming out this year but I actually think that's not even what will transform the world the most. It's the fact that, I think I saw some statistics that ChatGPT, even though it's on the front page of the, you know, every paper on earth every single day, the number of people actually using it is quite low. People who have engaged with it or tried it. And I think that's going to change this year. A lot more people are going to be using AI tools. AI is going to be integrated into a lot more workflows at every company. Um, there are going to be AI tools that interact with each other. So I think just the proliferation, the novel use, and the increase in use is going to lead to some dramatic changes. And in terms of governance, um, as much as people talk about the AI Act agreement, we still don't really know what's you know, in the details. And for people building these tools, 
we're really waiting to understand what are we actually going to be implementing, and that is going to be this hugely... This is the European legislation. Yes, the, yes, the European um, AI Act, which will be, I think, the only really comprehensive AI law of 2024. It doesn't seem like anyone else is close to something. I mean, the U.S. may do something, but we'll see. I, I think attention is really shifting now to elections. It's funny that, isn't it? You've got... It's mostly American companies developing these things and releasing them, but it's the legislators in, in Europe that are, that are taking that side of things on. Any reflection on why that's happening, whether that's a good or bad thing? To be honest, as someone who appreciates democracy, I think it is a remarkable thing that you can have people from so many different countries come together and agree on a piece of incredibly controversial and complex legislation. Regardless of how it will impact us, it is in many ways encouraging. So I think in that sense, it is a good thing. But again, I don't really know what the details will look like. So <laughs> let me talk to you in a couple of months about the law itself. And beyond the US and the EU, there's the rest of the world, which includes China particularly. And you've talked in this interview about some kind of global governance structure. How do you see China and everywhere else in the world coming together in that at some point in the future? So it's interesting, you know, you've, you may have seen this, but China's been incredibly active in the regulatory space domestically. And they've also been very engaged at the UN because the UN is running a process now where they're really trying to look at what might a governance structure through the United Nations look like. And so this is a question that China is incredibly interested in. And, you know, I know that they are likely interested in more just than the catastrophic risk piece, but it, they've done a great deal of thinking about uh, this issue. So I do think that there are that there are venues and that there is um, a reason to be somewhat optimistic that there will be some movement towards global agreement. Class, you just on a personal level, do you use AI? What do you use it for? I use it quite a bit, although it's funny, maybe not as much as one would anticipate. But one of the one of my absolute favorite uses is you can toss a PDF into ChatGPT and just ask it questions. So whenever I get, you know, a 600-page draft piece of legislation, that's the first thing I do. Just say, summarize the main ideas, tell me what, uh, you know, is this covered? Is this issue in there? And it saves me so much time. So in the past, you might have done a, a, a keyword search yes. right, in, in, in a text document. But, but this is much better because it's not just, even if the word is not in there, the AI understands if the concept is discussed. So, you know, uh, I actually, one of, we did, this was actually even possible with GPT-3, even if it wasn't as effective, but I remember doing this demo on the America Competes Act, which is a enormously long piece of legislation. And so, you know, we asked it, is there anything in here about a game played with sticks on grass? And it said, well, yes, it does talk about golf clubs needing to be a certain diameter. Is there a book you would recommend? It doesn't need to be about AI. It could be anything. Well, I'll tell you two. I, I very sadly rarely have time for books now, but I just finished Chip War. Excellent, and I think... Whose author was on Radio Davos a few months oh, ago. okay. Yes, I sort of recommend you. Well, if you've read the book, you probably don't need to listen to the podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> nonetheless, I, I may do so. And then I recently reread The Left Hand of Darkness, which I think has it's by Ursula Le Guin, one of the first, if not the first female winner of the Hugo Award, which is the main science fiction award, and it aged amazingly well. It's just such a remarkably wonderful book if you want fiction.
Anna Makanju, Vice President of Global Affairs at OpenAI. Before her, you heard Aidan Gomez of Cohere and Alexandra Reeve Givens of the Center for Democracy and Technology. The World Economic Forum is working to bring industry leaders, governments, academic institutions and civil society organizations together to work for responsible global design and release of transparent and inclusive AI systems. Find out more on the website to search for the AI Governance Alliance. We have lots of episodes on AI, all available on the Radio Davos feed, wherever you're listening to this, and all our podcasts are at wef.ch slash podcasts. And join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club, that's on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Sound engineering in Davos was by Juan Toran. Studio production was by Taz Kelleher. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>